Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Jay, and it is a privilege, and I would like to see Pastor Ron get a pie in his face and Heather dye her hair pink. So, let's finish that 50K, and what an outreach we will have. We think that the closest playground of any magnitude is at least a couple miles from us at Veteran Acres. And with all the homes and neighborhoods that have grown up around here, it is a tremendous tool. That's what it is, it's a tool to do uh, extended outreach and just to reach out to our neighbors and f- homes around here as part of our uh, passion to penetrate our community with the gospel and opportunities for the gospel. Uh, very quickly, when it comes to children's ministry, we're very passionate about that here. <clears throat> Every weekend, we have about a hundred children in children's ministries, give or take, uh, sometimes a little higher, sometimes a little lower, but about a hundred. Starting in May, our director of children's ministry, Heather, who was in the first service, let me know that we need five to seven additional adult volunteers per week, starting in May, in just a couple weeks, to have our ministries adequately covered. So I want to challenge you with a church our size, this should not be a problem. And I want to challenge you, if you've been thinking about, feeling the nudge to get involved, and you aren't, and you have a passion for ministry in this sense, our children's ministry is an incredibly worthy investment, and Heather and her staff do an incredible job. There's an application process, a background check involved, interview, and training. So we, we set the bar high. We really want to do the best for our kids. And you can contact either Heather Sukup, you can talk to me, you can talk to one of our pastors, you can call the church office, but we will get you in touch with that. Our text for today, I invite you to open, and I'd like to turn our attention to the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We're going to take a short break in our series in Matthew. In the sermons of Jesus, we're looking at five sermons of Jesus in Matthew, his five. And today, in light of the Lord's table and communion, I've chosen to go back to what I think is one of the most foundational texts in the entire Bible for how to be right with God and what the cross and salvation mean. So whether you know Jesus, I know a lot of us do, or whether you don't, and I know some of us here don't know Christ right now. We're religious and we're lost or we're... Uh, not religious and we're lost, but this is a great text for both the saved and the unsaved to hear preached uh, somewhat regularly. Romans chapter 5, I'm going to call this the cross and salvation. This section, chapter 5 verses 1 to 11, here's what it is. It's a direct link showing us what Jesus' cross does and the salvation it offers hell-bound sinners and the benefits it offers. And so we're going to look at five key words in the text, and it really doesn't matter what English translation you have. These five words are all in the original Greek text, should show up in your English translation. This is a message, sometimes you uh, do more of a high-level overview. This is a deep dive, a deep drill, because these five Greek words showing us the five benefits that come to the believing sinner are all anchored right here and show up in the text. Peace, access, hope, love, and reconciliation. Five key words to describe what the cross offers hell-bound sinners. And a number of New Testament scholars tell us, as they look at this section, 
how much Paul's language here surges with hope. And if you know anything about the book of Romans, you know that the opening chapters are anything but hope-filled. They are the most concentrated dose of damnation there is in the Bible. Because in order for Paul to give us the good news in the second part of Romans, he shovels the bad news in heaping piles in the opening chapters. And there's nowhere in the Bible that opens with that level of concentration, several chapters just laying out the bad news. If you're newer to the Bible, the book of Romans is Paul's longest letter. Paul has 13 letters in our New Testament. And they're not arranged by chronology, and they're not arranged by theme, they're arranged by length. They're arranged simply by length. And so of the 13 letters, Romans is the longest. And so Paul, who is the consummate missionary theologian, gives us one of the greatest expositions of sin and salvation. And this chapter is truly a climax in that whole conversation. So, number one, first key word. Again, this shows up in the Greek and the English, peace. And this confuses a lot of people because they think this is the peace of God, and so I'm going to show you what he's talking about here. Before we dive into that, let me give you just a little context, because we're not in a series in Romans. And so, in order to kind of just parachute into chapter 5, let me explain a little bit the backdrop of this word, peace with God. In the opening chapters, like I said, first couple chapters... Paul exposes the sin problem, and it's brutal and it's ugly. There's no other way to, 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 to map it out. Here's his message, and this is a uber countercultural, totally countercultural. His message in the opening chapters of Romans is that every single human being born is deeply infected with wickedness and depravity and rebellion against God. Call that doctrine of original sin or inherited sin, but all are guilty is Paul's conclusion by the end of chapter 3. Because of this deep, wicked, internal corruption we're born with. Now, here's here's the problem with that biblical view. We just don't think in these categories. The world, the worldly man, the natural man, even a lot of Christians just don't think in those categories. Here's our assumption. Most people, even people sitting in chairs and pews, but just in our culture, most people believe that if something goes wrong in life, or when something goes wrong in life, significantly wrong, it's because something has happened to me externally, and that the answer, therefore, and the solution is internal and therapeutic, and I need help to dig it out. That is almost the default wisdom of the culture in the world, that if something goes bad in my life, when something goes bad in my life, something has hap- happened to me externally, and i got to dig internally to find the answer. Those are not biblical categories. The biblical category is the exact opposite of the biblical paradigm. It says, actually, the problem is within, deeply within, and we need an external solution. Problem isn't out there, internal solution. The problem is internal problem, external solution. You see the difference? It is night and day. It is night and day. The problem within is indwelling sin and depravity. The external solution needed is a new righteousness needed, forgiveness from heaven. And if you don't walk away with anything else today than that and writing that down, thinking on that, 
that would make a total difference in how you parent, how you view marriage, how you view uh, uh, just about anything in life, even politics, and even how you view, because our founding fathers, some of them were Christians, some of them were not, but they understood coming out of a Judeo-Christian background that because of internal wickedness, they needed to have a system where there were checks and balances. You don't see that in a lot of forms of government. This, this affects everything. So, starting in chapter 3, Paul tells us there is a, there's an external solution to the internal problem we have of indwelling sin, and it's called the gospel. The gospel, meaning there is a way to avoid wrath, the coming judgment, eternity in hell, and there's a way to be forgiven and gain eternal life, and that's something that external something is called justification by faith alone. Now, just to help make sure we're all on the same page, because we come from a lot of backgrounds, I'm going to put a definition of justification up here. It's not inspired, it's not inerrant, it's not infallible, it's just mine. But it's a good working definition. I've pieced it together over the years from different sources. This will help understand, because especially if you come from a Roman Catholic background, where justification is viewed as a process a process over time, the biblical view is it's an instantaneous declaration. And I want to show you the difference. Justification, and Paul uses that word throughout Romans 5, is an act of God in which he declares the believing sinner. Each of these words is critical. It's an act of God. It's an act meaning it's an instantaneous one-time thing in which he declares, proclaims, this is legal language, the believing sinner to be fully righteous in his sight. Perfect. Each part of that is significant. And while you're staring at that, let me help you, because sometimes saying things in a positive way and saying things in a contrasting way is helpful. So here's the contrast. Every other world religion that I know of has the exact opposite view of this. Meaning what? It means... Every other world religion says something along this line. Follow these rules, follow this, this system, and maybe if you do it long enough and right enough, God or the gods will then accept you as justified and forgiven. Sanctification first, then maybe justification at the end of your life. Christianity is the only world religion, and I, some people don't like calling it a world religion. It is a world religion. It just happens to be the only right one. Christianity is the only religion that comes along, and this is the only inspired book that comes along and says, no, 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 no. The God of heaven doesn't work that way. The God of heaven looks at sinners and says, look it, if you will admit and confess your sin right here and be a believing sinner, the God of the universe will instantaneously declare you righteous and perfect, past, present, and future done. That's a massive paradigm shift from Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. Massive. You couldn't, you couldn't paint them in further different corners than that. And that is why this is good news, not just good advice. It's good news. Justification is an act. Now, how, justifi- how, how, how can God just declare this. Does he just declare it? And Paul's very clear. If you back up just a couple verses into chapter 4, he shows us how justification works. This is critical. Young people, you tracking? A lot of people get 
as they get older in life, finally get this, and they're like, I wish I'd figured this out earlier in my Christian life. He tells us here how people can be justified, how sinners can be justified by a holy God, starting in verse 22 of chapter 4. This is how God justifies believing sinners. And when it talks about His faith here, it's Abraham. So all of chapter 4 is an, is an example of, of justification by faith alone, using Abraham as the example. And when you get down to verse 22, here's how it works. Here's why it works. This is why his faith, his, this is why Abraham's faith was counted to him or credited to him, or the King James says, imputed to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted or credited or imputed to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What's he saying? The reason God can instantaneously declare you righteous is because he looks at the work Jesus did on the cross, actually his life and death, his conforming to the law of God and fulfilling it perfectly, then offering his life as a sacrifice. God takes that perfect record and the believing sinner, he credits it to their account. It's a banking term. Crediting or counting or the old English word imputed, which is still used in the world of finance. It's a banking term to impute. And there's actually three imputations in the Bible. Adam's sin is imputed to every human being. That's why we're born steeped in sin and wickedness. The believing sin, the believing sinner, his sin is imputed to Christ at the cross. And then Christ's righteousness at the moment, I believe, is imputed to me. And the result, chapter 5, verse 1, our first word, we, who's we here? The we is the elect, those who are saved, not just everybody. It's a believing sinner. We have peace with God. I told you that word peace is misunderstood here. Why? There's a big difference between peace with God and the peace of God. What's, what's the peace of God? The peace of God is what a believer's promised as they go through life's storms and trials, that no matter what happens, they can have God's settled peace, His, His comforts. It's, it's a calm, satisfied heart no matter what we're going through. That's the peace of God. That's not what this text is talking about. This is legal stuff here. Legal stuff here. This is the peace that comes with God. Not peace of God, peace with God. This refers to our legal standing before God. No longer under judgment, no longer under hell. That's what this is talking about. It's peace between two hostile parties. Let me do it in other words. Before salvation, we were separated and cut off from God. If you're here this morning and you're not sure you know Christ, you're separated and cut off from God. The Bible uses a lot of different words to describe this, like alienated or enemies of God. That's, that's the kind of language. That's why a lot of churches and denominations and pastors don't use that because they think it's offensive, it's going to drive people away. My experience is if you preach the Word of God as the Word of God, it actually draws people, it doesn't, it doesn't repel them, it'll repel some, but a lot, people want to know what the Bible teaches. And here's what it teaches, that before salvation I'm cut off from God, I'm alienated, that's one of the words, I'm an enemy. Now here, it's interesting, at this point, 
a lot of non-religious people will say, I'm not an enemy of God. I, I just, I don't believe in Him, but I, I don't, I'm not an enemy of God. Or a lot of religious people will say something like this, I'm not alienated from God. I'm trying to do my best to f- please Him. I'm trying to live a good life and obey Him. What are they really saying? And it's precisely at this point that Paul does such a great job deconstructing religion in Romans. He's, in other words, he says this, when we say, well, I'm just trying to live a good life and please God and reward so that I, you know, I'll be rewarded and taken to heaven, what we're really doing is we're trying to control God. We're trying to control the salvation process. We're trying to be our own Savior, you see. That means we're fighting God. What we're refusing to admit is how sinful, wicked, deceitful, how much we need forgiveness, and that we need peace with God. That is why this word, first word, is so powerful. The believing sinner has peace with God. There is no, there's no more charges against them. They've all been dropped, and there never will be charges against them ever again. Second word is access. Again, it's in the Greek and the English. This was originally written in Greek. Chapter 2, verse 2, through Him we have obtained access by faith. Gentiles, by the way, were kept out of uh, the temple. In fact, there was a sign if you got very far beyond the outer court that said, any Gentile that goes beyond this will be killed. How's that for user-friendly, (laughs) seeker-friendly? Put that on the interior of your church. You know, any unsaved person beyond this point will be killed. But that's, that's what they wrote. But once saved, I have a father and I have complete access to him. Anybody who has had that kind of access to a dad or a parent knows the huge benefits of this. Let me give you an example. Now, to do this example, uh, you need to go back before there were cell phones. Before there was instantaneous access everywhere, before there were cell phones, the old days when you had to have a cord on your phone and all this. When I was a pastor before cell phones, and one of my kids would call, or my wife would call, uh, or, or, or my mama would call. I told my staff, I said, look it, if one of my immediate family members calls, they are to have immediate access to me, no matter what's going on, because I don't know if it's an emergency, I don't know what it is, but I mean, they know not to call frivolously, but if one of them calls for something and they need me, whether I'm in a meeting, whether I'm in a counseling session, no matter what I'm doing, I want you to interrupt me because my children, my wife, mama, are to have immediate access to me. And that is a huge privilege for God's people. Third word is hope. Wow, do some of us need a dose of hope today? Do you need a dose of hope today? I need a dose of hope today. Chapter 5, verse 2 through verse 5. Listen to the surging of hope in these verses, let alone the Word itself. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope, I'm going to explain this in just a second, of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Watch His logic here. There's a train of thought here. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So here's what he's saying. Paul wants us to know something. 
He wants us to realize that being saved is not an automatic escape from the pain of the world. But he wants us to know that the truly justified can be assured that a good, wise, sovereign, all-knowing God is in full control of the circumstances of your life. So that's why in verses 2 to 5, he says, look it, this is what happens. Anytime we encounter suffering, it sets off a chain reaction. Nobody stays neutral when they suffer. So if you're here this morning and you're going through something that's very difficult, and you're suffering, you're going one of two directions because every human being goes one of two directions anytime they suffer emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. And it is this. You're either moving towards despair, which according to Anna Green Gables is to turn your back on God. She's a good source for theology. You're either moving towards despair or you're moving towards hope. There's no such thing as suffering and staying neutral. And the question this morning is, if you're here and you're going through suffering right now, which direction are you moving? In our first, our second church in Michigan, which we were there for over, over 20 years, here's a perfect example. We had a converted Muslim. I've shared about her story a couple times before. Very powerful. Her name was Maryam. She was from Iran. She was from Tehran, Iran. Converted to Christ. She finished her life in Michigan, and she was in our church, and she was just a godly saint. Maryam finally got cancer. In her early 50s, I was with her the night she died. I was up in her hospital room after midnight. She was gripping my arm and spasms of just intense pain would come over her. But what I did not see come over her was despair. Because you can be in intense pain, spiritually, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and still not despair. Why? Because of what is being said here. What is being said? God has not promised that every Christian will never walk in darkness. That's the mumbo-jumbo heresy of the prosperity gospel. That's, that's paganism. God does not promise Christians will never walk in times of darkness. Here's what He promises to every believer who knows Christ. Whatever you're going through, whatever pain you're going to go through now or in the future, doesn't matter. He promises to be with every true Christian through His Holy Spirit, through the Scriptures, and through the community of God. That's what He promises. Okay? And He's confirming it right now. That's God going, yes! That's what I'm promising. Showers of blessing will come on you. But that's what He promises. That's why the phrase, do not fear, occurs over 100 times in the Bible. That is why. So the second word here is, I mean, the third word here is hope. You can have hope that whether you're going through chronic pain, whether you're going through depression, whether you're going through anxiety, whether you're going through a marriage that's breaking apart, whatever it is, you can have total true hope if you know Christ because a loving, gracious Heavenly Father is in charge of every detail of that process, and He's doing all of it for your good and His glory. Fourth word, love, verses 6 to verse 9. By the way, one of the most popular topics in the American church is God's love, and yet it's widely misunderstood. Why? Because many think that God's primary way, that's the key word, of showing love is what? Feelings of acceptance. 
warm feelings of acceptance, which are important. I like warm feelings of acceptance from God. But according to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the most powerful way God shows His love to sinners is the death of Jesus on the cross. If you have any doubts, let's just go to what the text says. Starting in verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, what's the text say? Christ died for the ungodly, but that's not done here yet. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Verse 8 is key. But God shows His love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the primary way God shows His love for lost sinners are not just warm feelings of acceptance. Again, not downplaying that. It's the death of His Son on the cross. That is how we're justified. And that is what the love of God is all about. I learned a long time ago as a pastor that every Sunday, many who come in, in fact, perhaps most who come in to a church service, no matter how big or how small, come in hurting, come in afraid, come in with anxiety, come in lonely, come in confused or come in lost spiritually. And many wonder, does, does anybody love me? And ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, the Bible couldn't be clear. If we say anything of God, let us say He is love. For God is love, it says in 1 John. Or the most famous verse in the whole world, in the Bible, for God so loved the world. The world, as we've talked about, is not a head count. The world is the system of sin, evil, and depravity. That's why James says, you know, don't be part of the world. John says the same thing, don't be of the world, don't love the world. The world is that dark, satanic system of sin and evil. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. Let me, let me go a little bit deeper here by contrast, okay? The God of the Bible is personal, infinite, and loving. No other deity in the history of religion or cultures had those three things said of them. Personal, infinite, loving. Classic example, God of the Romans and the Greeks are petty, competitive, vindictive, and capricious. The gods of Hinduism, Becky and I have been in a number of Hindu temples in several different Asian countries. The gods of Hinduism are terrifying. They're merciless, they're impulsive, they're, they're demonic, and they're cruel. I remember talking to one Muslim in Malaysia, found out he was a Hindu, I mean a Hindu, sorry, a Hindu in Malaysia, and I found out he worshipped down the street, and I asked him, I said, which God, gods do you worship in your temple down the street? And he listed off four. He said, I think he said like the monkey God, the snake God, this God. And, that. and I said, okay, what's your feeling towards those gods? And he in instantly told me, he said, terror, fear. And in essence, he told me through broken English, I go down the street every week to the, to the Hindu temple to try to keep those gods happy so they stay off my back. That's That's religion gods of Hinduism are terrifying. If you've ever seen them or been around a, a Hindu temple, 
Gods of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, Egyptians are not much different. Only the God of the Bible is personal, loving, and infinite. And then in verse 9, we're told that this loving God and what His love delivers the believing sinner from, the wrath of God. God's wrath is unpopular not only in our culture but in many churches, but it's the core of the gospel. Notice the wording. Again, pay attention to the… let us hear the text, verse 9. Therefore, since we have been justified, much more shall we be saved by Him, Christ, from what? The wrath of God. That's what we're saved. We're saved to righteousness, saved from wrath. Last word, reconciled or reconciliation, verses 10 and 11. These last two verses contain not legal language anymore, reconciliation language. Look at verses 9 through 11. Since, therefore, we've been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, there's that word, the Bible calls every unbeliever an enemy, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Much more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the main focus of those last couple of verses is since sinners are rescued from wrath through the death of Jesus, they can rejoice. And one of the words, he doesn't actually use this word here, but one of the words used of reconciliation between sinners and God, gee, I think it's used, I think, four times in the Greek text in the New Testament, is the word propitiation. It's used in Romans, and it's used in 1 John. And here's what propitiation means. It means that Jesus' atoning death satisfied God's righteous requirements against sin and rebellion. God doesn't just wave a wand and say, you're forgiven. Because He's holy and He's a just judge, there has to be a basis for that, and the righteousness of Christ and satisfying God's demands for justice paved the way for real forgiveness. You see, that, that's how it could be done. Let me, let me quote John Stott, the great British preacher, in his classic, The Cross of Christ. If you haven't read it, you should. Cross of Christ, page 160. I think it's one of the best expositions on the cross you'll ever read. It's in our church library. John Stott. The, I'll read this twice. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's a great quote. That's, that, that's what it is. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's propitiation. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And then notice in verses 10 and 11, you have a shift. Up through verse 10, it's been legal language. Starting in verse 10, you have relationship language. And again, religions of the world don't talk this way. Islam doesn't talk this way. Hinduism doesn't talk this way. Buddhism doesn't talk this way. Confucianism, Shinto, go down the list. They don't talk this way. Only the Bible speaks of the personal relationship with the living God. And so, up through verse 10, he's been talking about justification, legal law court language, declared innocent. That's all legal language. Starting in verse 10 and 11, you have relationship language. 
And that distinguishes the God, the true God of the Bible from all other deities. All right, land the plane. Let's get this thing on the ground. Three summons that just come right out of this text. Number one, please hear these. All human beings are born sinful, infected with corruption, cut off from God, and need to be reconciled to Him if they're going to go to heaven. All, sin, all human beings are born sinful, wicked, rebellious again. It explains so much about parenting. <laughs> you understand that those little ones, cute as they are, the reason you don't have to teach them to say no and you have to teach them to say yes is because of theology. You don't have to teach kids to say no. It's one of the very first words they learn besides dada and mama is no. No, why? Because they are infected with wickedness and evil. I was, you were, your kids are, your grandkids are, and on and on it will go. And the only hope for that situation, the only hope for being born of that internal problem is an external solution, an alien righteousness, as Martin Luther would call it, not coming from E.T. Or, or aliens. It's an external righteousness applied that's why Paul can say, while we're sinners, Christ died for us. And the Bible says the moment a sinner believes and repents on the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be fully justified, past, present, future. All sin is forgiven. They're redeemed and they're reconciled to God. That is called gospel. And that's a word that means great news. Second takeaway, the Bible is very clear that the evidence that someone truly is saved is a growing pattern of obedience, a growing hunger, a growing desire. I'm going to say a phrase here. I want you to listen carefully. God's grace is not only a pardoning grace, or let me put it a different way. God's grace not only pardons our guilt, God's grace is also empowering uh, grace for godly living. And that's an important distinction. God's grace not only pardons my guilt, God's grace empowers me for godly living. That's why if I say, well, yeah, I know God, but there's no desire, no hunger in me to obey Him, if I don't live any different than anyone else, if I'm living in sexual sin, if I cheat on my income taxes, if I have bitterness and hatred in my heart, I mean, go down the list. I'm not living any different than any other, other unsaved person on my street. I'm, I'm fooling myself that I know God. And to make sure that I'm not just saying this, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will do what I command. Or 1 John 2, 3, whoever says, oh yeah, I know Jesus, but isn't doing what he commands is a liar. And sadly, friends, tragically, in every church sit people who are under the category of liar. They're sitting there saying, Week in, week out, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Jesus. And they go home and they live no different than anybody else. If that's you, you don't know Christ. The good news is this morning, you can know Christ. <laughs> you can take care of that. And the third and final takeaway this morning, true believers who know Jesus need to preach the gospel to themselves regularly. You'd say, why do I need to preach the plan of salvation to myself? The plan of salvation is only a subset of the gospel. The gospel is the whole story of redemption and your identity in Christ. That's what you need to preach to yourself. One of the reasons, friends, let me just say this pastorally, that so many 
professing Christians end up in anxiety, in fear, in depression, in addictions, is because they're not regularly preaching the gospel to themselves. They're so saturated in social media or they're so taken with working or sports or video games. It's amazing how many young men play video games when they should be shepherding their kids, discipling them, shepherding their wives, and doing other important things in life. The time we waste on social media and video games is a sin. Or watching TV, fill in the blank of all the stuff we do. One of the reasons so many people stall spiritually and end up in anxiety and fear is because we're putting the time in the wrong bucket. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones' classic, Spiritual Depression, is so vital. You've heard me say this, I'll say it again, it's worth saying about once every other week. Martin Lloyd-Jones in that classic says, look it, you want to stay out of spiritual depression? Quit listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. It doesn't mean go schizophrenic, but he uses King David as an example of someone who talked to himself, like, why are you so discouraged, my soul? Put your help your hope in God. That's talking to yourself. That's preaching the gospel to yourself. Stop listening to the tape that says, you're a loser. Oh, you committed that sin again. Oh, you'll never get out of that pit. You know how we listen to that tape all the time? And start reading and speaking gospel promises and saying, that applies to me. I have peace with God. I have access to my Father. I have hope because no matter what I'm going through, He knows what He's doing, and He loves me, and I'm reconciled to Him. That's gospel. And if more Christians did that, we'd have more joyful Christians running around the planet. In fact, notice verse 11. That's what Paul's doing right here in verse 11. He says, we rejoice in God because we've been reconciled. He's preaching not just to you. He's preaching to himself. And he's reminding himself of great gospel truth.